I'm not making fun of children's books. I'm not making fun of fandom. I am celebrating all of that. I'm in on the joke with everybody. And my intention was to write it so kids could understand it, but adults could be like, I remember that. Or yeah, that's a really, that's a, that's a moment that I, I still think about. Hi, everyone. I'm Rob Perlman, author of 12 Star Trek books, including Fun with Kirk and Spock, Supernova, and Trek the Halls. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, it's all about kids' books, something you wouldn't think pairs well with Star Trek, but as I learned, it's quite the contrary. Rob Perlman is an author whose work runs the gamut from kid-friendly books to titles that are most definitely not, but at the end of the day, he is a tried and true Trekkie. In the Star Trek universe, Rob has written the Star Trek Book of Colors, a Starfleet fitness guide, a Where's Waldo-style picture book called Search for Spock, the Star Trek prodigy young adult novel Supernova, and the hilarious parody book Fun with Kirk and Spock, among many, many others. He's also authored children's books about Bob Ross and The Office, and titles intended for more mature audiences, such as The Kana Sutra, and a whole series about a certain celebrity that I'm obsessed with, but we'll get to him in a few moments. Rob's been writing professionally for a long time, working frequently in the world of licensed franchises. But don't get it twisted, he's also got some great original titles under his belt, which we're also going to talk about today. If you ever wanted to write a kid's book for a living, or learn how a professional writer works his magic, this is the episode for you. And best of all, it's wrapped up in a pretty Star Trek ribbon. So let's chat now with Rob Perlman and find out what it takes to go from warp speed to hardcover. It's a terrible pun, but I'm going with it because it's literary. I can't think of much else. So yeah, Rob Perlman, let's go ahead and dive into it. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. So, Rob, I know we've barely talked. I only just met you not that long ago at Trek Long Island, but I feel like I know you really well because based on the books that you've written, we have a lot of shared interests. We both love Star Trek. We both love Bob Ross. 
And we both love Richard Simmons and have borderline unhealthy fixations with Skeletor. So my first <laughs> question to you, Rob, is are we just best friends who are meeting for the first time now? I think we are. Yeah. I we're, think we're we are. BFS now? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Rob, welcome to Trek Untold. You know, I, I've read your books for many years. I've seen them in stores. And I, I'm very excited to get to spend some more time with you and get to know the author behind them. Oh, thanks, man. It's a pleasure being here. So let's kick things off here just by getting to know a little bit more about you before we jump into all the books. But of course, we're going to start in the world of Trek and sci-fi. Uh, Rob, I'd love to know, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, my earliest memory of Star Trek is it being in syndication on Channel 11. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, so Channel WPIX. 11. WPIX, yeah. And watching it after school, but especially on the weekends. And it was the one show consistently that my parents could watch with me, that my grandparents could watch with me, because they remembered it from when it was originally first airing. And I think we were all, you know, we were all at different stages in our lives, but we were all watching it together and getting different things out of it. And and I have real distinct memory of my parents sort of, you know, walking around and like fixing dinner and my grandparents being on the couch and me on the floor. And, you know, they would they would walk through and just like stop and watch it for a little bit and be like, oh, Spock. (laughs) I'd be like, Spock. Yeah. That's a really cool memory. That's a really nice memory. Uh, and yeah. that kind of leads into next question here, which is kind of to follow up and get some more background on you. So we know that you're a Brooklyn boy, uh, but tell me a little bit more about your parents, what they did for a living and uh, what little Rob wanted to be when he grew up. Oh, my God. You know, we my parents um, always made sure that there were books at home. We would make weekly trips to the library. Reading was always, always encouraged. So I think they recognized from a very early age how much I enjoyed books, like the physical act of reading a book and sitting quietly and just sort of delving into that world. So whenever we would go to the mall, especially where, you know, there were, there were lots of stores, they knew they could sort of park me in a bookstore for a little while, you know, I'm Gen X, so we were left alone a lot. (laughs) So they could just leave me in a bookstore for an hour while they go, you know, did their thing. And, I remember walking to the library during the summer months when school wasn't out and it was just, it was sweltering and it felt like a 20 mile trek when it was probably only about three or four blocks to the library and opening the door to the library and feeling that wave of air conditioning. And it was just cool and comforting and leaving there with a stack of books every week and then going back and it was it was just fantastic. And and but despite all that, when I was really little, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, oh, nice. Lots of little kids. I was totally into dinosaurs and I had the action figures and all that. And then my parents very gently reminded me that if I was going to be an archaeologist, I would have to spend a lot of time outside. <laughs> um, and sometimes in the desert with a lot of dust and sand. And I'm like, ooh, that is not that's not for me. That is a real threat right there. It was a huge threat. It was a huge threat to my delicate constitution. (laughs) And I thought I got to figure out something else to do. And I I went to undergrad to be uh, a psychologist. I thought I'd be a child psychologist. And then graduated and thought, I I can't do that. I, I did an internship and I was getting way too attached to these kids, you know, who were from difficult home life and I was, I was, I just found myself thinking about it all the time. And I realized that I'm, I may be a little bit too empathetic 
And I don't know if I have the, the constitution to sort of shut that off at the end of the day. So I kind of floundered. I, I got a job in financial aid, which is the absolute worst job for me because I cannot do math at all. I had calculators. I was counting on my fingers all the time. And then I found out about the, the master's degree in publishing from Pace. A friend of mine had just applied and gotten accepted. And I was like, well, I like books. And I would kind of be interested to see how a book is made and took a whole bunch of courses and, and graduated. Uh, and then I started working in publishing. Um, and, and that was it. I was like, yep, this is where I belong. That is a long journey to get there. That's a really cool journey. And you know, I especially can kind of appreciate you going from like child psychology into different directions. Cause I, I have some friends who've done similar types of things or, or similar places in that, that avenue of interest. And uh, it can burn you out if you, if you take things too personally. And if you're very, if you're very empathetic and take it yeah. on, take all the weight on for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I realized I, I, I was getting burnt out just in an internship in college that was, you know, two days a week. It, it was just, it was too much. It was too much. But I thought, yeah, publishing, that's that's the right thing for me. But I'm glad I did it because I, I knew what where my interests lay. You know, a lot of my books are are kids' books or kids' books for adults, you know, sort of for, for the whole family. So I I think in my own way, I'm helping kids, you know, live out an adventure or relate to something in a book that I've written because I know how important books were to me. So that I'm able to pass that on to the next generation is, is really, it, it's meaningful to me. Yeah, that's really awesome. But, you know, we should add to you publishing when we talk about that. That is kind of like a big umbrella term for a lot of different things here. Not necessarily writing per se. It could be some copywriting here and there, but not really what you're doing at the moment. So what was the path then from you to start in the world of publishing? How did you get along and essentially get your first professional gig as a writer? So I, my first job in publishing was doing subsidiary rights, which is basically taking the book and licensing it out to other people for audiobooks or large print books, scholastic book clubs and book fairs. Yeah, scholastic I, book club and book fair is my favorite thing ever. The best thing. It's the best thing. It was, it was such a treat when one of my books made it into a scholastic <laughs> book club flyer. I framed it. It's on the wall. That's when you know you've made it. I really did. I really did. It was it was so meaningful. So I was working in in subsidiary rights in that department, helping everybody sell all these rights, international rights that falls under under sub rights. And I did that for a really long time and then had an opportunity to switch over to the editorial side where I was acquiring projects and working with different authors to help shape their projects. And along the way, I thought you know, I've got an idea. Maybe I could do this. At the time, I was the brand manager for Raggedy Ann and Andy and Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And I thought, you know, it, we were thinking of, of different different ways to take the property. And I thought maybe there's like a, a holiday story for like the fall that we could tell. And one of the editors said, why don't you write it? And I said, well, okay, you know, I, I can try to do it. And of course, I overwrote the entire thing. Um, but that was my first toe in the water of actually writing and, and being on the other side of that. And then I thought, I really like this process. I like coming up with the idea and shaping it and then working with an editor to refine it and, and make sure it's good. Um, and now I'm up to like 70 books, give or take, which is 
it's mind boggling. Only 70, no big deal. Only 70. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, as someone who spent a lot of time in, in the library reading and then also working in this field, was there like a, let's say a kid's book in this case, that kind of like really set you on the path of saying to yourself that, yes, I can do something just like this or do it better? I am not so ego-driven to think I could do it better. But I think there were some instances where I thought I could have my own take on it. Um, you know, my two favorite books growing up when I was, ever since I was little, three actually were Harold and the Purple Crayon, The Monster at the End of This Book, and in the night kitchen. Mm. And, you know, looking back on them, it's all, you know, it's breaking the fourth wall. It's all about imagination. It's about sort of following where that imagination is going to take you. And I I was really intrigued by that idea, the way the, the words and the pictures were sort of working together, but also inviting the reader to be part of the experience. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And when I wrote my first Bob Ross book, I wanted to have that sort of interactive element to the book. So Bob is speaking directly to the reader about the painting that he and Peapot are doing, and they're going in and out of paintings and um, asking the reader questions. So I I don't think, I, I think the thing that I and every writer can bring to the table are their own perspectives, their own takes, um, their own idea about what this, you know, sometimes it's a trope, sometimes it's a completely new idea, but there, you know, there have been lots of stories in the world. So you have to sort of find your own, your own pathway through it. Those are some great picks also, by the way, for books. And, you know, like for me, especially, I like to go to thrift stores and my girlfriend's a serious book hunter. She's looking for a certain genre, which is more like the young adult teen stuff from like the 80s and 90s, all that fun, weird stuff. But I go into the stores and I'm looking for like the children's books also, because uh-huh. you know, like my, my initial background was hoping to get into illustration to do children's books. And so it's really uh-huh. fun. Like, so, and so I'm recommending all my audiences, you know, if you are not familiar with these books or you haven't read them in a long time, go back, find them somewhere, pick them up and kind of, you know, read them again. If it's been a long time, because you'll get new ideas. You'll see them in a different light. They're so good. They're so good. And, you know, working in publishing for all of these years in in specifically in children's publishing and then all ages publishing. It it amazes me sometimes how how often children's books, specifically picture books, are sort of pushed to the side by an adult reader Mm. because they feel that you know, they've, they've outgrown them. And I don't think you necessarily outgrow a children's book unless you really want to, because the art can be beautiful and the stories can be really interesting and complicated and speak on lots of different levels. You know, there are some picture books or board books that are clear, you know, they're counting books, like they're not aimed for an adult audience, but I think there's something that can be appreciated in that genre by by everybody. Yeah, like just recently I, I picked up a book by Ezra Jack Keats called Apartment Three. And I'd never seen yeah. that one before. Like I, everybody knows about Snow Day. That's like we a did. classic. We all grew up reading that and especially yeah. in New York public schools. Um yeah. but I've never seen Apartment Three. And I was like, the the artwork is just like this this belongs in a museum. It's like this beautiful expressionist style uh of New York City interiors. It's like the, the best looking thing ever. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And what he was able he was able to tell a story with very few words. 
And it's, you know, the the illustrations, they just evoke a scene and a sense and a tone, and they work really well with with the words. And and it's funny how people think, oh, it's so easy to write a kid's book. It's only 32 pages. Well, yeah, that 32 pages took a year (laughs) to write, because in a a book like that, every word matters. I, you know, when I write, I think every word matters in whatever I'm doing. But especially in a in a children's book where you have such a limited space to convey the message, you really have to be creative and you have to think about how the art is going to play with the words. And, you know, I've been very fortunate when I do work on, on a new project, especially an original project, the, the publisher affords me the opportunity to provide art notes for what I think the art could look like. And sometimes, you know, there could be one one line of text on a page, but the art notes are, is a paragraph long mm. because I want to make sure the right elements are are being incorporated in it. And then I've been very fortunate with all of the illustrators that I've been paired with who, who'd sort of take that idea and either gently demonstrate why that won't work and come up with something that that is brilliant or or take my base idea and make it better than I even could have imagined. And just to go back to that point you mentioned too about it being concise. You know, a kid's book is typically going to be 32 pages. That's the format. And there is a lot of strength in that. You know, if you go back to, let's say, comics for another art form, comics are typically the same page length also. But when you're trying to get into the industry, they want to see a sample that's like two pages. And they want to see what you can do with those two pages to make the most out of that. So there's a lot to be said about the art of the edit in children's book writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of picture books are 32 pages. Some are 24. And then when I'm writing a board book, it could be 16, depending on on sort of the actual physical format. It could be eight. So you, you've got to get your point across <laughs> very quickly and very clearly. So a lot of what we're going to discuss today, obviously, is going to be your kids' books. And you mentioned this too a little bit earlier already, but you know, my initial thought is when you're writing these books, how much of this is you actually writing it for a child and how much is for a parent? And not just necessarily because of the fandoms you cover, because those are typically very much more adult based, but really more so, you know, with the idea of who's going to be the one buying it and reading it to the children. Thank you for making that distinction, because that there's a real big difference between who's buying it and who's reading it. Yeah. Um, and who's reading with the kid, too. It, it, it depends on what the book is, really. For a book like Pink is for Boys or The Sublime Miss Stacks, it's, it's an original children's book. So I'm really writing it for kids, but with the understanding that there's got to be something in here that's going to be appealing to adults because, you you know, when you're faced, excuse me, with a wall of children's books, a kid is going to look at it and and point to their recognizable characters. They're going to want the princess book or they're going to want the sports book. Um, because that's the thing that they know immediately. And this isn't a new phenomenon. It's it's always been that way. So for an original book to sort of grab the attention, it also has to grab the attention of of the adult. And the art has to be special. And the, the title has to be sort of interesting to it. So, you know, a lot of the appeal to, to the adult buyer comes in the, the marketing and the sales copy that's on the back of the book and and the way it is sold into stores and that the the tools that you're giving retailers to hand sell a book. And then, you know, not to 
talk about how the sausage is made too much, but it's like what time of year the book is being sold and does it get on an end cap? Those sorts of things are always, you know, they, they always have to be taken into consideration. But, you know, if I'm writing a kid's book, I'm writing a kid's book. And, and what I'm writing is hopefully clear enough and appreciated enough and, and entertaining enough for the kid to want to read over and over again. With the understanding that, you know, especially for the, the longer picture books that I write, that chances are, at least at the beginning, the, the, the grown-up in the kid's life is reading it aloud to them, sometimes at bedtime, sometimes during a class story time. And if it's going to be really boring for the grown-up reading it, they're, they're not going to want to read it again. But, you know, when I'm writing my licensed kids' books, I always try to throw in some Easter eggs for the adults that will probably go over the head of a kid just to sort of, you know, throw the, the adults a little, I, I got you here. Like, I know, you know, that I know that you understand what this one thing is for it. And it could be, you know, an illustration in the background. It could be a turn of phrase that a character that they're familiar with have, have used. But I, I always think that the, the kids books that I write that are specifically for kids always have a little bit of something in there for the adult interest. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the US, with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter Untold10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Are you looking for the perfect fashion statement to show you're a geek and proud of it? Well, welcome to Geek Girls Castle, where I make fun and functional geeky clothing and accessories for every occasion. My name is Missy, and I started creating my own gear and apparel in 2015 to bring nerdy products to the geek girl population, which does include all LGBTQA+, non-binary, and POC and BIPOC folks. I couldn't find anything for us gals except t-shirts, so I decided to combine my passion for fashion with my fandoms, ranging from handmade skirts with really large pockets, travel accessories like toiletry bags, luggage tags, and zippered pouches. I also embroider nerdy items for home decor like wall hangings and hand towels, and products like keychains, bookmarks, and journal covers. Need something to carry all that in? Well, I make great bags to put all those accessories into or onto. Whether you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Marvel, 
DC, and everything else in between, there is something for every geek girl. My website is constantly updated with new styles and fandoms, no matter what time or dimension you come from. If you'd like to browse my products or ask for something custom, visit me at geekgirlscastle.com. That's geekgirlscastle.com. So let's talk about Pink is for Boys, which I believe it's a very important work for you, and it's an excellent book as well. I'd love to, first off, you can kind of tell my audience who might not know about it, what the story is for Pink is for Boys, and what the impetus was to write that, and why that was so important. So this was probably about seven years ago. I was at a birthday party at a an ice skating rink for very good friends of mine, these, these twin girls. They were turning six or seven. And it was, it was a small-ish party, probably about 20 kids. There were maybe two or three boys and the rest were girls. And in order to get on the ice rink for the, you know, the employees of the ice skating rink to, under, to know that you're part of this group, all the kids had to wear little wristbands and they were pink. So this, this one mean girl that's really the only way to describe her. She was this seven-year-old mean girl <laughs> walked over to one of the boys who at the time was probably six, eight inches taller than he was, than she was. He was sort of a, 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 not an uncoordinated kid, but you know, when kids, when they're growing up, they don't have full control of their limbs that are growing at, at every second. She walked over to him and I was the only one the only grown up around close enough to to hear what was saying. And she said, it was something like your, your, your band is pink and pink is for girls. And he raised his hand and I realized pretty quickly he was looking at it. And I thought, well, what's he going to do with his hand? Because this could go a lot of different ways really. So I was sort of ready to intervene and he was like, whatever, pink's for everybody. And he just walked away. And I thought, you know, this is 2017. I can't do math. It was seven years ago. And I said, I cannot, I said to myself, I cannot believe we're still having this conversation about what colors are for what genders. And I just didn't understand how, how a kid that young could still be in that mindset. And then I, I went home and I just kept thinking about the situation. And I thought there there needs to be a book about this sort of thing. And it, the book is really just about colors and how every color is for everyone. And we go through a lot of different colors and we include unicorns because unicorns, everyone loves unicorns. And it's just a, it's a very simple story. And it's, you know, it's kind of told in, in verse. There's no sort of beginning, middle and end. You can sort of pick it up because it says, you know, pink is for boys and for girls and for ribbons on clothes and blue is for girls and for boys and for uniforms on a team. It's, it's really just a, a book that's declaring that like what you like, it's just a color. And people are reading a lot of, a, a lot into that and layering a lot of interesting ideas and opinions over it. And I, I'm amazed that this simple book about colors um, can be banned from schools. Yeah, I mean, let, let's talk about that, Rob, because, you know, a lot of parents out there today, they're so worried about messages like that. And really, what is the harm in that? Because you're basically addressing things like gender issues, gender equality. Uh, and this goes into a deeper topic now with a lot of kids books, because it feels like in the last 10, 15 years, maybe especially, 
a lot more kids books are willing to actually confront and openly discuss topics like sexuality, like gender, these things that kids books back in the day wouldn't cover. They wouldn't touch this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Why is talking about these types of things so important, not just to getting out a message out there, but really to a child's development? Like, why do these stories need to be told? You know, as as we've established, I am no child psychologist. So I can only speak from my own experience. And if I was a little kid and had the opportunity to look at a book that told me that it was okay to like pink, my life would have been different. And I know anecdotally the lives of a lot of other people would have been different too. And it could have started people on the road to actually living and not, and not taking their own life because they thought what they, what they liked because it's a color or what they wanted to wear or who they wanted to love was, was wrong. And it's, it's very upsetting to me that we still have to have this conversation because there is a generation of people, especially the the generation before me who, who died because of shame and ignorance and hatred. So I think it's, you know, in general, I think it's every generation's responsibility to raise up the generation after them and help them in as many ways as they could. Every generation is going to make their own mistakes, just as every person is. But I I don't think the, well, I got mine attitude gets anybody anywhere, really. So I think, you know, Pink is for Boys or Dolls and Trucks are for Everyone or the Sublime Miss Stacks or Tango Makes Three or any of the hundreds of other books that are out there that they pose a danger to people is is laughable. And I think it poses a danger to people who think, well, I got mine and I'm right. And who are unwilling to, you know, someone said equality is not pie, like giving up, you know, allowing people to feel equal doesn't make you less equal. You know, I, I, I firmly believe that, that books and movies and TV shows that are age appropriate help people and serve humanity. Well, and I think when people are bringing their own skewed idea or ignorance or willful ignorance to something, they're they're really doing harm. And I, I kind of think that's horrible. And there's really like no quote unquote hidden woke agenda in books that are like this. They are essentially about just addressing things that other kids' books don't address. And that is for a certain type of person who needs to hear those words. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because this is also where, once again, Star Trek intersects with this world. Because, you know, not that long ago on this very podcast, I had uh, Angela Dalton and Lauren Semmer here, New York Times bestsellers. And they wrote a book uh, last year about Michelle Nichols. And uh-huh. I know, you know, some of their books, I think was I think was the book that I believe was Lauren Illustrated. I think it's like the the Black ABCs or something. I forget the title. So apologies for that. But it basically was an ABC book meant specifically for Black children. Mm-hmm. And that's been banned across places also. And it's just so bizarre to me that like, it's not pushing an agenda. It's showing a different world, a different side of things that might not be necessarily for every single person out there. But to be fair, not every single book is meant for every single person either. 
No, no. And I, I don't, I just don't understand the harm in letting, you know, a, a really interesting thing happened when after Pink is for Boys was published. And it, it, it was beautiful because I was getting lots of, and still do actually, social media posts or, or messages thanking me, you know, from adults that their boy liked Pink. And this was the first time that he, that the, the kid felt good about it. Or from teachers saying, we were just talking about crayons and this book came up and it was story time. And here's a bunch of pictures that people drew. And that was great. And But some of the surprising emails I was getting, it was one email and I think a social media post too, was from a parent who said, who thanked me for including a brown skinned girl on the cover with a, a Caucasian boy, because it was one of the few times where her daughter was able to see a girl who looked like her on the cover with a boy who looked like one of her friends from school. And that astounded me. That astounded me. And, you know, it was important for me when writing Pink is for Boys or, or the Sublime Mistacks that we include kids of every every skin tone. There's a wheelchair user in the Sublime Mistacks. Like, it, what, is the, what is the harm in allowing a child to see themselves positively in a book, being happy and enjoying the same things that everybody else and by everybody else, I mean white kids are doing, or straight kids, or gender conform- conforming kids. Like I just don't, I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like it, it's bizarre too, because you know a lot of folks will say, you know, this thing isn't meant to be political. Sports isn't meant to be political. Star Trek isn't meant to be political. TV shows inherently within anything that is art. There is politics and culture involved and, you know, not necessarily politics with the capital P, but also politics with the lowercase P. There's a lot of different things that are encompassed under this. And if we really take a look at kids books, they've been addressing these issues for years, but they've had to do it in usually with little smaller brushstrokes, let's say, because of when they came out. I mean, you look at things like what S. Jack Keats did. Those are books that appeal to everybody, but these are really black centric stories. Mm-hmm. that are being told for everybody uh or even you know let's go back to the frog and toad by arnold obell and i'm just like I'm, li- I'm literally waiting for the day for conservatives to start saying we should ban this book because that really is essentially a book about coming out <laughs> I, i'm sure they i'm sure in some uh areas it already is it it, it you know it, it it's always the people who say this shouldn't be political who make things political yeah, it's just, it's just how it is, I guess, for whatever reason. But to be honest, you know, Star Trek and politics, they've always gone hand in hand. And I think same thing too, kids books, while there are the ABCs and learning your colors, there's bigger issues that you can start tackling with books. And that's how you learn. You learn through exposure and children's books are a great place to start getting that. Yeah, I, I saw a meme somewhere or it was maybe it was a Twitter exchange from someone saying, when did Star Trek get political? And it was like 1966. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, you know, people like to be angry about things and, and sometimes people need to make other people feel bad about themselves to make themselves feel better. And I, I hope they find peace somewhere along the way because they, they live in this constant state, constant state of anger and aggrievement. And that can't be good for your heart. 
literal and and theoretical. So I hope they find peace. All right. So on that wonderful note, uh... uh-huh. <laughs> it's all about hope. <laughs> yeah. So Rob, let's beam into our Trek discussion now. And you've written a ton of Star Trek books here. I want to start with what I believe was the very first one you did. Was that fun with Kirk and Spock? It was, yeah. It was. That is, that is a very, very fun book. Okay. Uh, so talk to me about the origins of this book here, because this is now your first foray into Star Trek. Was this also your first time doing licensed books? And uh, how did this all come together? Because this is you know, a fun parody book. If folks don't know, you know, it, it's based on a, a much older book series, and now it's been injected with some Star Trek fun times. Uh, so yeah, just, just give us the whole overview, please, and uh, educate my audience about this. So I think technically my first licensed book is probably that Raggedy Ann and Andy Leaf Dance book. But this one, this one was really, it was so much fun. So, you know, as as I said, I was working in book publishing for, for years. And I, as a result of it, was going to a lot of industry, but also sort of public book events, especially, <clears throat> excuse me, like a couple of years before for kids books. And at about the same time, I started to go to lots of fan conventions, especially like, you know, specifically the Star Trek ones. And it really struck me by listening to everybody around the overlap that I was hearing between children's books and Star Trek. So many people were talking about Star Trek, about how they like, like I just did, like how they watched it with their parents and their grandparents and how they still do and how they introduced it to their kids. And similarly, oh, this was my favorite kid's book. When I was little, I remember sitting on my grandpa's knee and he would read it to me, or this was my mom's favorite bedtime story, or um, I buy this book for all of my friends who are having kids because it was my favorite. And the the Venn diagram and the overlapping bit was the intergenerational love of both of these things. And I thought I there's got to be a way to have those two great tastes taste great together. So I had a a pretty long commute at the time. It was about an hour, hour and a half each way. So I just started writing these silly little Dick and Jane like stories just for my own amusement. And after a while I thought maybe this could be something. So I, I talked to my agent and she thought, I think this could be something. And, you know, because it is an officially licensed thing, it needed to go to the, the IP owners and it was a pretty quick LOL from that. Like they immediately understood what I was trying to do. They they knew from the outset that because I was a fan, I'm not, I wasn't, I'm not making fun of Star Trek. I'm not making fun of children's books. I'm not making fun of fandom. I am celebrating all of that. I'm in on the joke with everybody. And my intention was to write it so kids could understand it kids could appreciate the rhythm of it but adults could be like i remember that or yeah that's a really that's a that's a moment that i i still think about so we we signed the the agreement and i had to watch every episode of the original series four times kind of back to back really and and find moments in it that i could build off of you know, there are some original things in there that are just sort of thematic. You know, there's one about Yeoman Rand's hair. Clearly that never made it into the show at all, but there's lots of specific episode callbacks for it. So I think I, I wrote probably about 100, 125 
of them. And then we just sort of whittled it down and whittled it down to sort of the best 30, I think. So a lot was left on the cutting room floor. But the entire process of that book was, it was so joyous because everyone got it. Like everyone understood the purpose of it. And the art came out beautifully. And it it was... It, it was a really great way for me to sort of enter the Star Trek publishing world. And in fact, the week after the book was published, I got an email from sort of weird email. And, you know, usually when you get that sort of thing, you just automatically delete it. But for some reason, I opened it and it was from Leonard Nimoy congratulating me on the book and telling me how how great he thought it was. And I nearly passed out. <laughs> It was incredibly sweet and he didn't have to do that. And and the 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 thought that he actually took the time out of his day to do that. And at the time he he wasn't well physically. So that that just meant more than I could possibly say to him. And I was like, all right, Nimoy likes it. <laughs> Maybe somebody else will too. I hope you printed out that email and framed it somewhere. I did. <laughs> I did. Okay, good, good. And I'm so, so curious now about what got left on the cutting room floor. I, I feel like that's maybe going to be another episode, but uh, I would love to hear what else, what didn't make it into the book. <laughs> Trek really untold. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, yeah, we should add too, a lot of the Trek books you've worked on have been works of parody, but I think they've all been officially licensed works of parody. Would you mind running down a few of those other parody books that you've got out there so folks who are listening or watching the show can take a look at those? You know, really, I think only two of them are technically parodies. There's fun with Kirk and Spock, and then there's the search for Spock, which is sort of a, a seek and find where you have to find Spock, you know, yes. amongst a hundred thousand other characters. Which I regret, um, by the way, at Trek Long Island, not buying, getting signed by you because that book is so awesome. Oh, thank you. So next event I see you, I'm doing that. <laughs> totally. I mean, that book was really interesting because each spread has maybe four sentences on it, but sort of harking back to what we were saying before the the art notes for that were a page long because I had to set up the scene and then describe all of the different original series characters who should appear sometimes where they should appear on the spread. So that took a while. Then the, the next one was the wit and wisdom of Star Trek. And then in that sort of gift booky field, I also did the Star Trek book of friendship. Uh, with Jordan Hoffman, with art by J.K. Woodward. Um, and that has uh, a forward by Robert Picardo and Ethan Phillips, which is great. And that's talking about all of the great friendships throughout Star Trek from TOS through Discovery. Then was Starfleet Is, which is really, it's about Starfleet, but it's really about fandom and every everyone and everything that fandom encompasses. So Starfleet is energized and Starfleet is inquisitive. Starfleet is flawed. Starfleet is inclusive. Starfleet is, you know, it's everything. It's another Venn diagram about Gene's vision, about what he thought Starfleet could be. And then all of the different kinds of fans that are there who are all brought together by star trek and then i on the kids book side i did star trek my first book of colors which is a board book with lots of easter eggs that was published at the same time as aaron mcdonald's star trek my first book of space 
So together they're like a little steam collection. And the girl who made the stars, which is based on a short trek episode. And oh, Star Trek Prodigy Supernova. That's a middle grade novel. And Body by Starfleet, which is a real exercise book, but told through a Starfleet lens. I worked with a personal trainer to make sure that all the exercises were correct. And then there's the Book of Grudge, all about grudge from Discovery. And I think I'm missing one. That's terrible, isn't it? I mean, you've only written like 70 books, Rob. No big deal. Oh, Trek the Halls. That's the latest one. Ah, okay. Track the Halls. So that's a holiday book told across the series. I think there actually is another one that you're missing here. I think there might be a few others here, but I think the one that I want to talk about was the Red Shirt's Little Book of Doom. Oh my God, of course. <laughs> yeah, because yes. that title alone should tell my listeners what it's all about. But <laughs> give, me, give me some more details on why uh, Red Shirt's Little Book of Doom is like the best thing ever. Oh my gosh, thank you for reminding me of that. I'm embarrassed. That's, it's not a humble brag. I really, I just forgot about it. I've always been interested in the side characters of of any show that I'm that I'm watching. And you know, red shirts have just become such a thing, not only among Star Trek fans, but in in the world too. You know, you instantly understand what's going to happen to a red shirt. And then, you know, similar similar to Fun with Kirk and Spock, I was commuting and I thought, well you know, poor Redshirt, like he just dies all the time. But what else could happen to Redshirt to make his life miserable? So this book is sort of an illustrated menu of all of the the terrible, terrible things that befall poor Redshirt, who doesn't even get a name. <laughs> in it. So, you know, he's sitting in, in a movie theater and a gigantic Gorn sits right in front of him so he can't see. He mixes in his red shirt with his white underwear and everything comes out pink. They're about, they're, they've just launched for their five-year mission and he realizes that he forgot to go to the bathroom. You know, they're, they're, he's at SETI City and Khan is the pet shop owner and he's showing him the little worm thing because he wants to adopt a pet. That was a huge, huge amount of fun to write. A lot got on the cutting room floor for that because some of it was just too extreme. You know, I didn't necessarily want to make it like, you know, a Wiley e. Coyote Acme violence fest these are all really sort of everyday things that happen to a a lot of people but the fact that they're all happening to poor redshirt (laughs) it it was so much fun to write it was so much fun i love how you called it a menu of ways that he gets taken out i mean that's that's (laughs) a colorful use to a colorful way to to describe what's happening (laughs) for a guy i'm a writer yes (laughs) it shows uh (laughs) Hey, everybody. We'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer. But first, I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. 
If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. I'm also happy you mentioned Body by Starfleet. Because yeah. I actually had that book. I got that book sent to me by the publisher to review on my website. And I think I've, I've actually reviewed a few of your books on the site a long time ago. But Body by Starfleet, I remember looking at it and I was like writing in it how impressed I was. How not just was it like legitimate exercise information. Because it was all like real, actual good stuff and good workouts as well. But it also just like filled with the perfect amount of fan service. I just, yeah, I really appreciated what you did. And I think that might have been like my real first glimpse into your books outside of the kids world also. Ah, uh, the first glimpse into my mind. I'm so sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> warped, the warped world of uh, red shirts and uh, <laughs> exercising. Yeah. <laughs> when you're working on these sorts of books, how involved is Paramount? Or maybe I should ask, when does Paramount get involved, if ever? You know, Star Trek is their IP. So they are involved, without a doubt. Nothing is pitched to a prospective publisher without Paramount's approval. So it begins with them. To some degree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at this, at this point, after 12 books, I've got a, a, a wonderful relationship with them. They, they've been fantastic to me throughout. They understand my point of view. They understand what I try to do. So uh, unless it's, unless it's already authorized, I'm probably not interested in, in a Star Trek project as a fan, as a reader and, and as a, as a, as a writer. So, you know, they have to approve the initial idea of it. And then, you know, it kind of depends on what book it is, because different books may be constructed differently. For something like Supernova, which is a middle grade novel, that was about 20,000, 25,000 words, as opposed to Star Trek, my first book of colors, which is 100 words. Uh, So, you know, for, for Supernova, they have to look at the outline um, before I actually start writing it, and then maybe a sample chapter. Star Trek Book of Colors, I was just able to just to sort of send the entire manuscript, or the publisher was, for them for approval. But, you know, they have to look at the art, if it's original art. And they, because they understand what the book is, and who the reader, who the readership is, who the, who the buyers are for it, we're able to work together to make sure that all of the boxes are checked to make sure it's the best, the best book that we could possibly do. So Paramount is involved. Yeah. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Honestly. I mean, how deep do they dig their claws into certain things though? I mean, like, do you get like way close to the finish line? And then they're like, I actually no change that. Or are they just kind of like letting you do your own thing? And they're just like, whatever, cause it's approved. Uh, I mean, I mean, how, how far do, do they actually go? I've never had that experience where I had to change something at at the end. I pride myself in trying to send them as clean a a manuscript as possible. I think because I've had, you know, so many years of of fandom and and knowledge of the franchise and experience writing books and and creating books on on both sides, I, I try to make things as easy for them as possible. So there's a, there are very rare occurrences where I'll be completely off the mark on something there, you know, nothing is perfect. So there will be instances where they're like, oh no, that it's not that ship. It's that ship. 
Or if I was, I think one time I misnamed an alien species. And so, you know, they caught that or something. I, I don't really remember any really significant changes or, or conflicts. You know, I, I, I like to think that I know and appreciate their perspective for it. So I'm not going to do something so off base without at least, you know, putting a little asterisk, like I know this sounds weird, but here's why I'm doing it. You know, there, there are always going to be occasions where there's an issue with an image, either the quality isn't good enough or, you know, an image has been used too many times and let's try to figure out something. So they're, they're involved, but I've always found their involvement to be super helpful um, yeah, it's been a great relationship. And beyond Star Trek also, I alluded to at the start of the show, some of the other licensed properties that you've worked with, which is, it's pretty broad. Would you mind just kind of telling us about a few of those also? Well, I worked on the picture book for The Office and Parks and Recreation. I've done books for Marvel and for Bob's Burgers and Rick and Morty, Bob Ross of Smurfs. Um, I have a Golden Girls book coming out this fall i'm looking at my shelf to remind me richard simmons which you talked which you talked about um i did a little wonder woman gift book so oh and of course what would skeletor do so he man and the masters of the universe so i i always say if 10 year old me could look at what i'm doing now his brains would just garbage pile kids off <laughs> it would just be amazing <laughs> i can't believe i get to write a Smurfs book, and I can't believe I get to write a Star Trek book. Rob, across all these fandoms, you're doing a lot of different work here. I mean, is there a book that you've done that kind of combines all those things? Because it's a lot of fandoms you're into. I'm into a lot of fandoms. I am. And, you know, I've noticed a lot of people are into a lot of fandoms. It's okay to like more than one thing. You mean Star Trek fans can like Star Wars? That's heresy. They really can. (laughs) They really can. So I wrote a book, actually, about it. Now that you mention it, thanks for bringing it up. The book's called Live Like a Vulcan, Love Like a Wookiee, Laugh Like a Hobbit. (laughs) That's a great Um, title. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. And it's a parable about sort of better living through pop culture. So it's the story of these four cosplaying folks who meet up at a Comic-Con and talk about life and what they watched and what they read and what games they played and how it affected their lives. And I think we cover about a hundred different franchises in it so i think you know there's star wars and star trek and lord of the rings but also indiana jones and pac-man and you know if you're into pop culture at all i think you'll be able to find something in it and this was really interesting for me to write because it really made me think about all of the different kinds of pop culture that i enjoyed why i enjoyed it and and how we as a community sort of celebrate that and connect through it. So there, there are some sort of heavy moments in it. You know, we talk about grief and we talk about loss, but we also talk about just singing a song and connection and understanding and taking chances. And I don't think it's the kind of book I would have been able to write when I was just starting out. But I, I, I'm really proud of it. And, and I think it came out really good. 
since we're already being blasphemous heretics right now by combining these fandoms, is it safe to say that this kind of is like a Bible for nerds in some way? <laughs> maybe not a Bible. Uh, maybe it's more of like a, a how-to. <laughs> how to maybe be good at one, life. One book of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should stress also that, you know, while we spent a lot of time today talking about the kids' books that you've worked in, you've also done some more adult-oriented things also. Yeah. Uh, I know there's like the Kana Sutra, and you wrote a book about drag queens. Um, but today, I actually want to talk to you about a uh, another, another book that you worked on, which was a memoir. And uh, you edited, I believe, I believe you edited, or I'm not sure if you edited or covered, you can, you can correct me on that. But uh, you worked with Don Bluth on his memoirs, correct? I did. Yeah, I was his editor. Okay, yeah. So I, I'd love to hear about what that process was like. I mean, are you there kind of like working with him and talking to him about his stories? Are you going to meet the man? Because I mean, that's that guy's right there is a legend. I would love to spend some time with him also. Um, so I just want to hear a little more about him and what it was like to put together a memoir with Freaking Don Bluth, man. Don Bluth. It's Don Bluth. Yeah. No it's sense. Don Bluth. Yeah. When when I was when I was an editor, I get this, you know, email from his his right hand. And, you know, Don Bluth is interested in writing a memoir and your name came recommended. Would can we talk? And I'm like, yes, we can we can talk. And then I actually got to talk to Don himself. And I tried not to fanboy out too much. I was pretty calm about the whole thing but meanwhile like you know beneath the surface my legs are going crazy because it's freaking don blue and you know he's great don don is a storyteller um and and an amazing one with a very idiosyncratic voice for it so my job was to make sure that he was telling his stories the best way he possibly could and giving him all the tools to do that so you know, as any editor who is working with an author on any book, you, you know, you, you're you're always giving suggestions like a little bit more of this, not so much of that. Oh, you mentioned this. I'd love to hear more about that thing or, or let's bring this theme in or, oh, you forgot to talk about this. I think everyone's going to be really interested with it. One of the things I was particularly interested in doing and, and Don lesson was was completely game for it was to include brand new illustrations where don was sort of animating his own life um in these little pieces of spot art that have never appeared anywhere and, and i think just having those little snippets of that part of his genius really completed the book it, it made it it made it just such a beautiful beautiful object for all of his fans and I will say, you know, sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes. If anyone has the opportunity to meet Don Bluth, meet Don Bluth, because he is everything you want him to be. So I read uh, an interview that you did, by the way, on uh, prideandlessprejudice.com. And I want to bring this up because you talked about four writers that you make a point to reread every year. And there was a reason why. So uh, if you you don't mind, can you kind of like educate my audience on who those folks are and what is so important about them to you and what lesson we can learn from them? Yeah, you know, the the four that I always read, they and I think this sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, each one of them have a very particular perspective on the world, their experience. Each one of them provide a, a sort of a, a serious take, but with a layer of of humor in parts where it's appropriate and where it's palatable. And every word in every one of their works is there for a reason. When you're reading a David Sedaris essay, who's one of the four 
um, every word counts because their their essays and and his particular take on it is is so David Sedaris. When I'm reading Dorothy Parker, you know she's coming at it from a completely different perspective at a completely different time, but what she's saying is still so universal. And Oscar Wilde, his turn of phrase, like everything in all of his books have now just become, become part of normal nomenclature. Like everyone uses those phrases all the time. And I, and he's one of the people who I will constantly laugh out loud. Even if I've read a, a passage in Dorian Gray, which is a horror story, but he's infused it where appropriate with such wit. And then finally Harper Lee, I mean, the To Kill a Mockingbird is is in so many ways just such the perfect book that every time I read it, I feel like I'm reading it for the first time. So to kind of go off on that then, I mean, what would you say is the most influential book that you've ever read that changed your worldview? That's a really good question. You know, I think To Kill a Mockingbird sort of changed things for me as far as the way she was telling a story from the child's perspective, looking at all of these very adult issues from a different and, and and for me, at least, an unexpected way really allowed me the opportunity to see that kind of storytelling. The person who you think maybe the main character isn't necessarily the main character. And really talking about, it made me sort of think from that perspective about the the, the reliability of narrators and and their perspective on, on a particular situation. And then, you know, not to repeat myself, but the picture of Dorian Gray, the fact that it is this horror novel talking about very deep issues, supernatural and natural, but with such wit and with such an individual perspective on it. And, you know, as a gay man, so much coding throughout the whole thing it was like, oh, there are stories like this. <laughs> they can be told. And although it was written, I don't know how many years ago at this point, it still felt fresh and current, as as did To Kill a Mockingbird. So I think those two are probably the most influential adult books. And then I think Harold and the Purple Crayon and Monster at the End of the Book are probably neck and neck for one and two for me because they allowed me the chance to step into a book for the first time and to to embrace the art of storytelling with an artist with an author and on my own so i think those two books sort of informed everything that came onto it and allowed me to then appreciate dorothy parker and oscar wilde so for you, Rob, is there like a dream book that you have in mind that one day you want, you want to write? Is there like this magnum opus that Rob Perlman has floating around in the back of his head right now? <laughs> I have a lot of ideas for the kinds of books I want to write. I've been very fortunate where I've been able to write lots of different kinds of books. I've written middle grade novels and picture books and concept books and a, a cookbook and, you know, guides to life. And I don't take that for granted at all. There, there are some ideas for sort of some longer form projects that I'm toying with that I'd love to get the chance to write when I feel like the time is right for me to do it. 
I mean, you know, I, I'd love to write a book that is made into a movie so I can you know, go to the premiere. That, that would always be fun. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm very, I know how lucky I am to be able to do this because I love it. And I know how many other people struggle. Let's take that again. That was terrible. Okay. You know, I know how very fortunate I am to be able to do what I love and be creative and, and create books. And I do not take the responsibility lightly at all. So yeah, I, I'm really excited to see what's going to come next. And there are some things that are coming next that I can't talk to you about yet, um, but I'm super excited. But that please, because that's my next question is like, what is Rob Perlman working on right now? I mean, like, <laughs> what's coming next for you? Well, I can tell you two things that are coming for sure. One is Loki's book of mischief and magic, which is a magic book fully authorized by the folks at Marvel. So Loki is teaching magic tricks. So you can come out of it knowing about 35 tricks. That was a lot of fun to write. And the Golden Girls Guide to Life, which was amazing. You know, when you have to sit in front of the TV and watch the Golden Girls for seven hours and call it work, there are, there are worse ways to spend your day. So those two are coming out this year. I'm really excited about it. And, and there are two things coming out next year that I, I am clawing my skin at that I want to tell everybody, but I, I can't, there's going to be an announcement coming pretty soon, but they're, 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 they're dream gigs. So I'm happy about that. I'm very excited about uh, upcoming Golden Girls books. Uh, I, I will definitely be checking those out. Thanks. Now, uh, as we come to a conclusion here, Rob, I want to ask you uh, the most important question now of this entire interview, really. Uh, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh my gosh. You've probably heard this before, but it's the connections. And I'm not talking about like the professional connections. I'm talking about the personal connections with people who gather together because of their love of Star Trek. And from that, amazing relationships are born. Some of the best friends I have, I met because of Star Trek, including you, as we've established now. And the the fact that Gene's vision of everyone coming together, not perfectly, but around this common cause of infinite diversity and infinite combinations and equality and exploration and adventure, and really living that and seeing it firsthand at conventions or in bookstores, that's been that's been absolutely amazing. Well, my new BFF, for folks who want to stay in contact with you, what's the best way where they can get updates about everything that you're working on and all the new books you've got coming out? I'm on all social media at Rob Perlman. That's probably the best way to do it. All right. So plain and simple, look up Rob Perlman wherever you're doing the social media thing. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And Rob, just want to you know, say thank you again for chatting with us today and telling us all about different books that you've written. And it is really cool because you're essentially paving some bold new frontiers as well. You know, you and just like, you know, we had last year, Angela Dalton and Lauren Semmer. You guys are Star Trek fans who are taking the knowledge of Star Trek, the fandom of Star Trek, but also the politics of Star Trek, the culture of Star Trek, and what Star Trek really means. And essentially, you're putting it out there in a different way. You're, you're telling those stories, and you're telling the stories that need to be told to the people that need to hear it. And that's a very Star Trek thing to do. So uh, thank you for that and uh, for exploring strange new worlds to the world of children's books. Thanks so much, Matt. It was good seeing you. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, 
all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.